2: TV voice of the Cincinnati Reds, and you're up for Late Night Reds Talk.
0: What is going on, everybody? It is Monday night, and you know what that means? Another fantastic edition of Late Night Reds Talk Live, brought to you by Believe and Bet Online. Bet Online is back and better than ever with our new web interface for the start of basketball season and more props and odds than better before. Better line remains your number one spot for all basketball, football action this season. Head to the new updated desktop or mobile website to sign up today and receive your fifty percent welcome bonus on your first deposit. Just use our promo code Believe Fifty to receive your bonus. That's B L E A V fifty. And now on to late night Reds talk live. We are without Carlos tonight. He is celebrating his anniversary, but never fear, the crew is here. I am Tim Daniel, as always, with Mister Nick Kirby. How are you, sir?
1: What is going on? I uh, wanted to shout out everyone who joined our uh, emergency podcast on uh, Friday night. Uh, really great crowd joined us. Uh, I-, I was super excited about that. Thanks for all your interactions and everything. And uh, uh, we'll probably try to do that again uh, if everyone seemed to like it. You know, as there's breaking news throughout the off season, I'm sure there will be some, some here and there. So thanks again to everyone.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I was working a basketball game that night, so I couldn't make it. Um, but I appreciate you guys holding it down, you and Clay. That was awesome.
1: Yeah, thanks, um, Clay. Thanks, Clay, for coming on last <laughs> minute.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. We are really excited for our guest today. He currently has a book out that he tells us before is selling very well and very happy to hear. He is the author of Joe Nuxall, The Old Left Hander and Me. He's been the, he is the media beat blogger for WXVU.org. He's been the Cincinnati media field for quite a while. Our good friend, and hopefully yours. Mr. John Key sweater, welcome to Late Night Redstock Live.
2: Hey, thanks for having me on.
0: How are you, man? You doing all right?
2: Well, I survived last week. I mean, the 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 news of losing three Reds players in in the span of four days was pretty tough. It's
0: <laughs> it's life around here, I guess. It seems like at times, but you know, we got it. We just we're here to roll the punches and hope for the positives. That's what we do here because we got nothing else to do apparently. <laughs> Um, John, obviously you've talked quite a bit, you read your biographies, you've talked, you know, you've been around the Reds, you've been a Reds fan for a long time. And I noticed when I was looking into some information on you, you said the, the, the year you became a Reds fan was 1961.
2: 1961. I was eight years old when the, when the Reds were in the pennant race and, and won the, won the national league pennant and went to play the world series with the uh, New York Yankees. That was really when I became a, a, a really big Reds fan. Um, back, back, back in that day, there was only like 47 games or, or about that many on TV. So it wasn't a full 162 like Reds fans have now. So we did an awful lot of radio listening, but as an eight year old to have your favorite team, the Reds go to the world series. It was just the greatest man.
0: So for those who don't, aren't like us, the baseball geeks, um, <laughs> The 1961 Reds in the World Series, yes, like like John mentioned, they played the New York Yankees, who at the time had the greatest home run hitting duo in history at that time. in Roger Maris and Mickey Mantle, that's obviously the infamous year where Roger Maris and Mickey Mantle are chasing the infamous 60 home run record that they put an asterisk next to, which is still hilarious to me that they just were that protective. But obviously, that's a pretty incredible year to first get involved with the ball club. And it got, you know, you saw your the selling go to the world series at eight. So that means you were a teenager when they went in 70. So you've, you've obviously seen some good baseball in your time.
2: I I was lucky. I I graduated from Ohio university in 1975 with a journalism degree. And the only gig I could get was a summer internship for 13 weeks with the Cincinnati Enquirer right at a college. And it got near the end of August, early September. And I was a graduated senior. And, um, And the city editor said, "Well, you know, if you don't look for a job, we could hang you on here and keep you on because it looks like the Reds might go to the World Series. We're going to need some extra reporters. So my job for the, for the in the World Series and the playoffs of um, of '75 was to, to what we called the local color. I would the reporter that went down and talked to fans or talked to longtime fans who who are in for their X number of consecutive World Series." and see about two innings of the game and then have to run back to the, the inquire and write a story for the next day's paper. So I didn't get to see a whole lot of the game, but I was part of the world series coverage team. And, and that was a, a nice way to start a career.
0: That's so, yeah. So for those like you and I, how we're talking here. So I, I cover all the local division one basketball teams, um, mm-hmm. credential potentially cover them. And my first year I got on the beat for Xavier Was Chris's last year when they were the one seed, and I grew up a Xavier fan, so like you understand that, like when you're there and you're watching, you have to like just have no emotion, but inside you're like, yes, like,
2: and and and, you know, and and it was it's a great gig. My gig was to go out and talk to fans who love the Reds, and uh, come back and write stories about them. um The one unfortunate part was, you know, I would have loved to been able to hang out in the stadium all nine innings and see the game, but. With a press pass, I was just uh, interviewing different people or interviewing back at that point out of the plaza outside the uh, Riverfront Stadium and uh, then have to come back and, and, and write something. But it was, it was, it was really exciting. And then, and then you know, we had it seventy five seventy six, 75, 76, and we thought, boy, this is the way life is always going to be. <laughs> and uh, then it took a while till 1990. Um, and then, the, you know, the, the great drought since then.
1: I followed you for a long time. Uh, certainly enjoy like your, your coverage. Kind of definitely nerd out in some of like the media. I love I to look up like TV ratings. That stuff kind of just always fascinated me. Um, for me, I'm someone who the Reds in uh, went to cable exclusive like when I was in high school. So I'm really interested and in, in fascinated about what – life was like with the the Reds pre you know even 145 games a year on on cable before they went to every game um I, I know I remember watching some games you know when I was when I was young on like channel 64 uh, I've seen some old clips where Marty Brenneman was actually uh, doing doing play-by-play on TV tell me about life pre-cable and and uh how how the Reds were covered and uh, how they uh, moved out uh, uh primetime programming and how the how all that worked.
2: It it, it was a, a wholly different universe. Back I would say for through the through the sixties and the seventies and, and well into the mid nineties. Um, WLWT Channel 5 uh, NBC station was the flagship of the Reds TV network and they they only did I think forty seven games a year and it was forty four road games and three home games. One was opening day, and the other two they couldn't announce till like 24 or 48 hours in advance because the Reds feared that it would hurt the gate, that if people knew they could sit at home, watch it on TV, they wouldn't drive down to the ballpark and go to the game. So one of the reasons that Marty and Joe or that baseball on the radio has always been so hugely popular here is because you know, to get all the games, you had to go to radio. And you only had like 47 games a year that you could actually watch them on TV. Uh, One byproduct of of all that was that in the 70s, when the Reds were so good, uh, they were on Channel 5. And so when NBC came in to do their Game of the Week, because that was pre-cable also meant pre-ESPN. So um, if you were a national baseball fan, you had the NBC's Game of the Week on Saturday. And in the 80s, you had ABC experimented with Monday night baseball like they do Monday night football. But because Channel 5 did, and they were an NBC affiliate, did the Reds games, when NBC would come in, they'd pick up all the people from Channel 5 who could cover a game very well. I and mean, they had a guy in center field who could zoom in on the, on the pitch pitcher delivering the pitch and then he could open the camera and follow the ball you know like a line drive back up the center field unlike anybody in the that NBC had so they had always had great camera work when NBC would come to town but it was a wholly different universe um, until the, the mid 90s when uh, when they switched to a cable package and and here here's the other thing that was crazy about it because they were an NBC affiliate um, Channel 5 and NBC would have this dance each year cuz in month cuz in May May sweeps Channel 5 wanted to get as many Reds games in there cuz they were big ratings and big, big ratings meant big revenues but there there were times that NBC would do like a two-part miniseries back when they did movies of the week Sunday and Monday and and NBC didn't carry either of them cuz they had a Reds game Monday night and they blew off the network for the big two-part NBC miniseries. So I- NBC, the network, was not happy with with their Cincinnati affiliate blown off the network. Um, and when NBC had the World Series at times, I guess which was in the, I'm trying to think, it must have been the, in the 80s, because on Thursday night, they would air Cosby at 8 o'clock and then start the baseball game at 8.30 instead of 8 o'clock so they could have the... Uh, the Bill Cosby number one show on TV wouldn't be wouldn't be interrupted by the World Series schedule.
1: That's fascinating. Was that a, were the Reds like competitive that time in terms of um, what other teams in their markets were doing? Like you said, forty seven games. I think was that like a competitive rate or was that more or less average?
2: You know, I I, I really I'm going to have to say yes. I mean, the the the, the anomaly back then was. <clears throat> the two cable super stations, which are WGN with the Cubs and uh, TBS at Atlanta, Ted Turner would put all the cable, all the, the, the uh, Braves games on cable. So if you're a baseball fan, you could watch those two and see those, you know, Harry Carey and, and uh, doing games out of Chicago. But, but I, I'm pretty sure. And, and, and in Cleveland, they were, they were on the independent stations, W. Is it UAB? AUB? UAB? I think it is. Um, so that it, in some markets, the the baseball franchise would be on an independent, like WGN was an independent station, TBS was independent, not one of the big three network affiliates. But in Cincinnati, they had the NBC network. They had a juggle in and around the uh, the res broadcasts.
1: Was there something nineteen ninety five where? there there was a potential of blocking out the playoff game in Cincinnati because they didn't sell out do, do I remember something about that
2: well let's see I was at this game so um I, that was after that was after the strike right right and that was uh <laughs> that was when Marge hosted it was it was the Reds Braves let's uh, with it the Reds beat the Dodgers and then then they they came here and um Marge didn't throw a party or anything for the, like they usually did, and so when they went to Atlanta, the, the, the Braves ownership, which was probably Ted Turner at the time, went overboard and having these great lavish parties for the media and everything. Because because Marge, would, the other thing I remember about 90, ninety, and I mentioned it in in my book, the uh, Joe on the old left hander, was that one thousand, nine hundred and ninety uh, playoff games, Marge's idea of pregame entertainment was having the Cincinnati police mounted horse patrol out in center field and do their horse formations. And of course, horses did what horses did. And (laughs) and the grounds crew had to come with like snow shovels to scrape up the crap off the the field. And you could see these brown smears in the AstroTurf. And you just knew that Reggie Sanders wasn't going to go diving for no ball in the gap. (laughs) 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 But that was her idea of of pregame entertainment.
1: That's interesting. That's all the nerd questions I got about about no, no about the media. I, I appreciate. It. I I'm always fascinated about stuff like that.
2: Well, you know, I think you know, um, Marty and Joe, and I and I had the great pleasure of of, of covering Marty from from '85 when I took over the beat till um, through his retirement, and Joe for the 20 years, 21 years he was there, uh, that I was on the beat. And, and they were they were such a, a big deal here, because they were on every day and they were entertaining. And, and actually, Marty has said that you know, af- in the early '80s, after they had the 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 hundred loss season, and you know, Perez, Rose, Morgan, Foster, Seaver, Eastwick, McAdeney, they were all gone. That he said we had to be we became bitter broadcasters because we became storytellers and entertainers and people weren't tuning in to hear a hundred lost team, you know, whether they're gonna win that night or not. But they tuned in to hear Marty and Joe just, you know, having fun on the radio.
0: I remember once listening to Marty do a game and this was a few years back. And he was talking about WLW was contracted to do so many major league games. Like, so there was times when they would go to Milwaukee and do a Brewer's game because they had to with their contract. Do you kind of remember that?
2: No, the, the way I remember it is, is that two things. Uh, now the, the Reds have their own rights and produce their own show. But when WLW produced it as the flagship, two things. That's why you had the banana phone, because you had <laughs> WLW had this big three-hour window that they were going to, that they had had to sell, they had to have broadcast something so they could put commercials around it so they could make money. Um, now, the Reds don't need a banana phone. If it's random, they just go back, you know, throw it back to the network stations and let them fill the time and just occasionally jump in. But, but they, uh, when the Reds, when the WLW had the contract, they would go to the banana phone because they had the programming that they had to sell, whether it was a ball game or not. And if it's not, it's gonna be the banana phone. The other thing was during the strike of, um, of uh, ninety four, um, the the because W L W you know had this had this time allotted and advertising sold for programming that during the strike they sent Marty and Joe to to Birmingham Alabama to do a double A game over the weekend a series over the weekend when the Reds the uh, double A Chattanooga look-out, Lookouts played the Birmingham Barons. And that was significant because that was the year Michael Jordan was playing outfield for the Birmingham Barons. And um, I, I have it in, in the, for the, one of the pregame shows during that weekend of a, of a game that, you know, nobody really cared about except Jordan was playing. Joe did a pregame interview with Michael Jordan about the difficulty in transitioning from basketball to baseball and what it was like picking up baseball you know, 14, 15 years whenever he played it in high school. And um, so the WLW needed to, to do that to have programming at least on the weekend because they had this pre-sold advertising package for, for, the, for the season. But it, it made for some funny stories that um, a- actually while they were down there, Marty and Joe and, and yeah, Yid, Dave Yiddy Armbrister went to the old original ballpark. that's still there. It's now a historic landmark where Joe had pitched in 1944, when he pitched for the Reds in 44, and and he got bombed by the Cardinals, they actually sent him at age 15 to Birmingham, Alabama, to be to pitch for their the Birmingham Barons, which were a, a, a Reds minor league farm team, and he only pitched once, and he got lit up just as bad as he did against the Cardinals. So his I, I've got it in the book. His combined stats were I, I think he. He he uh, he pitched an inning in two thirds, and it was kind of the similar result. He gave up, I think, six runs, uh, five hits, four walks, or something. It was just an ugly line, and they never pitched him again.
1: That's fascinating. I've never heard that story about
2: yeah. I didn't either. Marty
1: covering uh, uh Michael Jordan.
2: Uh, yeah, it was. Yeah, I, I was able to track down the entire interview, and and in the my chapter on the um, on his star of the game and and, and pregame interviews, I. I have some excerpts of that and and also, I mean, that was the, the, the you know back when Joe did interviews, and after a while, um, it be, be, most of the players or the coaches he knew were out of the game and and, and players stood him up and they, he couldn't get players. but it, the the last weekend that Ozzie Smith, when he was retiring, which I think was in 96, uh, the Reds were the, the playing the Cardinals that final weekend, when the when the uh, his uh, the the retirement weekend for Ozzie Smith, and he had Ozzie Smith on, and and talked about Ozzie Smith and the history of of doing the backflip, and 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 Smith at the end of the interview, um, when Joe wished him well, said he he really enjoyed when the, when the when he'd be coming to Cincinnati and have to play against the big red machine because they're always tough, such a tough team, and and knew that it would be always a, a, a tough time and, 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 to, uh, you know, to compete against the great athletes at Cincinnati Cincinnati had with the Reds.
0: I think one of my all-time favorite Marty and Joe moments, and it's so funny. I just watched a documentary recently and this popped up on it, um, was, I think it was like 88 or 89. Um, there was one time in the booth they had macho man, Randy Savage in the booth. Mm. And the funny, the story of like the Marty talks about it is, the game's going on, but everyone in the ballpark is looking up at the radio booth because
2: Randy Savage is in there and he's in full macho man gear. Right. He was he, he had a thing at Riverfront Coliseum that night. Yes, he did. And and he had there was a, a poster of Hulk Hogan on the on the wall in the booth, and he took it and he shredded it. I didn't and, know uh, that part. Yeah, yeah. And and uh Eric Davis and some of the players popped out of the dugout, and were flexing to, to show their muscles to to Randy. You know, Randy was was a um red. His, his real name, it was a Reds farm ham, a catcher in yeah. the early 70s that kind of washed out and went into wrestling well then yeah that, that made a, a good story of the book because after all this went on Mar everybody was enjoying it because in that game both starting pitchers the red starter and the Padres starter didn't last the first inning it was like seven to six after the first inning I mean it was an awful game. So having some having this diversion in the uh, up in the radio booth was entertaining for the fans rather than watching this awful ball game, but after about the fourth or fifth innings, Steve Schott, who was the uh, nephew of of Marge Schott's Shot's late husband, came into the booth and and told Yid to get him off the air, get Macho Man off the air, and uh, and Marty overheard it and was not pleased and told Joe to take over the broadcast. And he went out and confronted Steve's shot in the hallway and, and, um, and, and basically said, you know, you don't come in our booth. You don't tell us what to do. So then after the game, um, I think it was, uh, it was uh, Jim Ferguson said, Marge would like to see you in her office. So after the game, they all go down to Marge's office and there's Yid and, and Marty and Joe and Steve shot and Marge. And, um, And Marge was trying to say that, you know, this wasn't the proper entertainment for the ballpark. And, and, and Marty said, look, you know, I, I go over there. It's great fun. People of all ages love it. Um, I take my daughter there, which he did. And, um, um, at one point Steve said, you know, I almost had to get physical with him. Meaning, meaning macho man, (laughs) 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 to which, to which, uh, Marge told her nephew to, to just shut up, <laughs> and uh, so anyway, it was it. The people saw the the theatrics in the, for, it, going on in the booth with with Macho Man that day, but the uh, the the real match came after the game in Marge's office, and uh, and Marty won them both.
0: That's like an all-time Reds photo. I, I I need to put that up in my basement. I'm sure my wife will be cool with that. Yes. We do want to get into real quick. Obviously, the reason you're here is your book okay. uh, and obviously you know the idea of the book is pretty self-explanatory you were around joe for a very long time you got to know him yeah. fairly well um and you interviewed him quite a bit obviously and the book is kind of telling the story of your time interviewing him it's not like a linda trip thing where you're hiding tapes emails you're actually literally have that with him so he knows that you guys are talking so it's kind of tell us a little bit about how this came together
2: well, I, when I left the Enquirer at the end of 2014, I knew I was going to write a book of some sort, and kind of kicked around on different things. And, and for one concept, I was writing this chapter about Marty and Joe, and realized I had an awful lot of material about Joe that was that was that a lot of people didn't know or was relevant and interesting. What happened is I I, I grew up in in Middletown, and like we talked, to, I was a Reds fan and eight years old in 1961. And in 1962, the, the Reds have a winning record, and they're 10 games out in July behind the Dodgers, the Giants, and the Pirates. And they, and they bring up this left-handed pitcher from the Miners named Joe Nuxhall from Hamilton. He's left-handed, I'm left-handed. And Nuxhall goes 5-0. and oh, And I thought he was some young stud pitcher like O'Toole and Maloney and, and other guys from the farm system. And my dad said, no, no, no. Let me tell you about Joe Nuxhall. You know, he pitched in 1944 during the war Fifteen years old, the youngest player ever, pitched through the '50s. Was an All Star in '55 and '56, and then went one and eight and sixty, and they traded him away to Kansas City. And so he missed the '61 season, which was a World Series season. And I, right then, I found my hero. And in fact, I got—I got, I had an old Topps card. I don't know if you can see this at all, but I actually—and wow. I—and I framed it. And uh, I tell people it's on my dresser, except it's in my hand right now. But it's still on my dresser today, uh, just a remnant from my childhood. So it was it was a big deal when I would be able to interview him for like 20 years. But we moved up here to Fairfield in, in 1986, where he lived, and and he would come to my church to the KSC in January, and um, talk about the Reds and you know the Reds prospects for this year. And then somebody would say, Joe, tell us about the old days, and he, he would talk for like an hour and a half just telling story, hilarious story after hilarious stories about his playing days, about Kazuski, about a spitball duel between Gaylord Perry and Jim Maloney. Uh, he'd tell um, there's a, a time in Wrigley Field after a rain delay that the Cubs bunted on him and he went to field it and fell on his ass. And so the next guy up bunted on him, <laughs> he fell on his ass again. And and then, then, then Ernie Banks doubled and another guy singled. And the and Bertie Tebbets came out to, to relieve him. And he was so pissed that he, um, that he tried to tear up his glove. He threw it in the stands. Uh, he, he threw bats. He threw helmets. And um, then he went into the, into the clubhouse. And back then, the, um, the helmets were in a box that were about six feet long and about a foot square that they stacked the helmets in. And he kicked it, and it got stuck to his foot. And he's walking around the clubhouse with this big giant foot box on his foot. And the clubhouse boys had to get it off of him. And, and, and he, so he, he told these just really hilarious stories. So um, without notes for like an hour and a half, and they go until either some, somebody would raise their hand and say, you know, one last question, or more than likely somebody raised their hand to say, we're out of beer so that the meeting's over. And, um, and so when Joe wrote his own book, with, with uh, Greg Horde in, in 2004, none of those great stories were in it. And when I would interview Joe, I'd about whatever story I was doing for the Enquirer, or whatever, I'd, then I'd take time at the end and say, hey, tell me about the time of you fell on your butt, fielding the bunts in Wrigley, or tell me about the spitball duel, or tell me about Kozuski, or, or Kurt Flood, or Billy Martin, or all the people that he, or throwing a spitter himself. So I had all these stories, and I thought, okay, let's uh, let's put it together in a book. And actually, the first chapter is all the great stories that I would hear him tell um, at, when he did speaking appearances. And then I did a, a chapter on on uh, Joe's transition to broadcasting and working with Al Michaels and and Marty and and Marty and Joe and the pranks they played on each other. I even did a, a, a chapter on him hitting. He hit like fifteen home runs. That's one more than Bob eucher if anybody cares. Um, <laughs> and, uh, you know, even did a chapter on, on the Kroger commercials that he did and, and the star of the game and, and pitching batting practice. I mean, th- that was the other thing. If you back in the old days, you could get to Riverfront Stadium, you got there early, you could watch the Reds take batting practice and Joe would be pitching. And what sets him apart, you, you think of all the baseball games you've watched and often the analyst is a former pitcher. Oral Horshouser, Bob Gibson, Jim Palmer, um, nice. Ron, Dar- Ron Darling, C.J. Nakowski, Welsh Brantley, you know, and and even a little bit going back to Dizzy Dean, pitchers have been analysts, but nobody pitched batting practice, and he did almost every day. He retired um, during spring training in in April of '67, and the very next day he pitched batting practice, and he pitched batting practice from. 67, till after Rose came back in 84, it was roughly about 87 when, when he, when finally um, Marge interceded and uh, he stopped pitching batting practice, but he had like 20 years of pitching batting practice to the, and, and people like Foster and Ben say that he was a big asset to the big red machine to have, when they're going to face Randy Jones or Steve Carlton or, or a lefty that they could take batting practice from the left. It wasn't the same speed, but they could get the motion of the, of the ball of the delivery and um, s- set up their timing a bit. And uh, both Foster and Ben said he was just, just a really big asset to the team um, during the big red machine years.
1: It's pretty, um, pretty wild to have a radio broadcaster Out throwing batting practice whereas take it to 2021 we're doing zoom calls like think of of how how far uh we've gone from from covering you know the game that it just that's such a crazy i'm sure that helped you know duck with uh his ability to relate to the players to tell their stories on the air being you know down there on the field every day with them
2: well, that and, and he always considered himself part of the team. Um, he, um, you know, th- his whole thing, you know, when, when somebody would hit a home run and he'd start shouting, get get out of here, get out of here. <clears throat> that's what he did. And other guys on the bench as a player in the, you know, in the 50s and the 60s that, that the ball would would get out. But, you know, he would he started his day at the clubhouse and he ended his day in the clubhouse after doing the start of the game. Um, he often ate lunch or ate, ate his meal pregame meal down in the clubhouse back when they had pregame meals, rather than come up and have it in the, in the media dining room with Marty and Yid and all, um, you know, he was, he was a batting practice pitcher. He was a coach. He was a mentor. He was just one of the guys. And, um, uh, he was just—he uh, touched the club in so many different ways, and the fans. It, it was just, you know. Uh, and the other thing that, that 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 Mark and Rick Stowe pointed out, he and and Bernie Stowe, the old equipment manager, were the only two who had a locker in Riverfront Stadium every year. That players came and went, but Bernie and and Joe always had a locker. And even in the fall call-ups, when they'd add players to the, uh, you know bring up players from the AAA roster joe still got a locker to himself but he was pitching batting practice and when he was on the road most of the clubhouse boys knew him from his playing days or knew that he pitched batting practice and he had a locker in in all the other national league stadiums around the league so he could pitch batting practice before he he, he did a game
0: that's so crazy I, yeah i never knew that
2: it was it's a totally different era that uh you know, and, and the and the post game star of the game. I did. Tom Browning said that after he threw the perfect game, he was greeted down the, in the edge of the dugout where Joe did his his show, and and Joe had two beers in his hand, <laughs> one for Tom and one for himself, and they uh, drank a beer and did the star of the game show. The the, uh, the the thing about about Joe is it, it he was uh, he was such a great storyteller. Um, and, and the one chapter I've got in there is I actually sat him down once and asked him to give me his all-time Reds lineup, position by position. And I asked the same question to Marty. And I won't give it away, but, I mean, you you think of the, the first baseman. You know, he played with Clue. He played with Lee May. He played with Tony Perez. And then he watched Sean Casey. Um, in shortstops, you know, he uh, he. He was pitching batting practice when when um, the day Larkin did his tryout when Larkin was at the University of Michigan and came came down to Riverfront. But, you know, before Larkin, there was Concepcion, and before Concepcion, there was Cardenas and Roy McMillan. And he played with those three. I, I guess only two of the three because Concepcion came in 1970 after Joe had retired. But, but when Joe was still... Johnny Bench reminded me that Bench, Bench came up in 67 was rookie of the year in 68 but in 66 he was there as a catcher and he caught Joe his in spring training before Joe's last season in 66 and you know Joe saw the beginning of the big red machine when he played in the 60s you know when Perez came up and Rose came up and Bench came up Tommy Helms who was later traded for Morgan So he saw the beginnings of the machine, uh, and then broadcast all the games, of course, in the 70s. So, can I answer the question? Yeah, go ahead. (laughs) (laughs) Who is my favorite player? Besides, boy, that's a good question. Um, I I really like Tom Browning, only because he was such a a no nonsense left handed pitcher. Um, I really liked Larkin. And, and Larkin, you know, his MVP season. I, and I told my kids um, who were born between uh, uh, in the 80s and the early 90s, I said, if Larkin ever goes to the Hall of Fame, we're going to go. And in 2012, we made a road trip. And we all, the, my three sons and I uh, drove up to Cooperstown and watched the enshrinement ceremony. And, and that was great fun. Um, I'm trying to think of some of the other players. Um, I, I'd like to watch Pete Rose and Joe Morgan, um, as much for their 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 speed on the base pass and daringness to take a base, and their ability ability as well as Bench and Perez to come through in the clutch. Um, I was there the day that Rose came back as player manager in '84, and they were playing the, you know the the, the buzz went through. The inquiry where I was working that uh, the Reds had acquired Rose. And then the next day it was, oh, he's put himself in a lineup. He's going to hit leadoff because there was a question. He wasn't hitting that well for Montreal when, when we acquired him and whether he was going to, um, um, how much he'd play. And then that day that I went to the game that night and they actually held up the first pitch for about 20 minutes because there was such a huge walk up crowd. They ran out of scorecards. Some of the people that arrived late couldn't get a scorecard, and then Rose gets up and the first shot he hits it up the middle. It got past uh, Dernier, and he and he took third base, and he goes into third base head head first, and like the whole place just exploded. It was it was an amazing uh, scene that day, and when Morgan came up with guys on, you know, he came on. When he got on base, you always would uh, figure he was going to steal. He added such a dimension. And, and th- that leads to a, a story of the book. Um, th- I did a whole chapter about the pranks that Marty and Joe played on each other in the booth. And one that Marty and Joe talked about for years was there was a game in Candlestick Park. And in Candlestick, the, the engineer for the visiting radio team was Mike Marquard was quite a practical joker. And one time he rewired the speaker in the in the reds booth, you know the speaker that they make the announcements, you know, the time of the game or the weather conditions or substitutions. So it could only be heard in the booth. And in the first inning, uh, there's a page for Joe Nuxall to come to the press box for a long distance call. And Joe's kind of pissed because Everybody who knows what he does knows that he's in Candlestick calling a Reds game. Why would somebody be calling him? So he goes down to the press box and says, where's the long-distance call? Nobody knows what he's talking about, of course. So he goes back to the booth in the second inning. The long-distance call for Joe Knoxville, please come to the press box. So he, he goes down there again, and the, and the guys look like he's got three eyes or something. They have no idea what he's talking about. So he comes back, and uh, it happens in a third inning. It happens in the fourth inning. In the fifth inning, in, in Marty's words, in the fifth inning when this announcement came over, he went down there to kill somebody. He was he was that man. Another time they get to San Francisco and, and the engineer has, so this is 1977 and brought in a VHS machine. And at that time they were as big as a suitcase or as big as like, like a dresser drawer. And he hid it under his feet where the engineer sat and he wired it to the TV monitor in the booth. So in the seventh inning, it's Joe's inning, and he's calling the the game, and Morgan gets on first. He steals second and is called out, and immediately pops up and starts to argue. And Sparky Anderson runs out to second base, and they continue the argument. And, and Joe looks down for the replay on the TV, and the engineer hit play, and Instead of the replay, up pop Deep Throat, the X-rated movie. <laughs> and, and Joe is thinking that Deep Throat is going out to the entire Reds TV network, and he's there giving Marty the elbow and pointing to the to the booth. And, and of course, it's radio. He's not saying anything. He's speechless because of 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 what he's seeing, and um, and they they got him real good. There was an, another time that. Um, but another story I wrote about it, in, in nineteen ninety seven. Um, Sports Illustrated actually did a two page story on Joe Nuxall about the fact that he was, at the, I think, at that point fifty eight years old and still pitching batting practice for the Reds. And he um, and it talked about how he he was throwing more pitches in batting practice than he ever did during his career, and, and in in one day. And so there's this nice story. Uh, about Joe, the the Sports Illustrated writer, spent the weekend with him in the radio booth in Shea Stadium one weekend. And um, the story comes out and Dick Wagner, the Reds president, is just pissed. He's just royally pissed because Joe said that after a game, he likes to go home and unwind. He watches Johnny Carson's Tonight Show. He eats a pound of Colby cheese and he drinks a six pack of Michelob every night. And Dick Wagner calls him in and says, don't you know that our sponsor is Stroh's, not Michelob? (laughs) (laughs) But on the jump page, there was a a sentence, one sentence that got Marty in trouble because the writer noted that when Joe was calling his innings, Marty would sit in the booth and read a novel. He wasn't uh, he'd have the headphones on so he listen, but he wasn't watching the game. He was listening to Joe. But he he was a big reader. He still is. He would always have a novel that he read on the bus to the ballpark and on the way back. And when Joe did his innings, he uh, he would have uh, he'd relax and and read a novel. So Marty gets a call from Dick Wagner's secretary to to come to the ballpark early the next day. And Marty comes in, and he goes in Wagner's office, big big wood desk, and he's got the Sports Illustrated open on his desk. And Dick goes, did you see this? And Marty said, yes. He goes, is this true? And Marty said, yes. He said, usually he and Wagner would have these big knockdown, knock down, drag down, uh, drag down arguments. But this time he knew that, that um, Dick Wagner had him. And he just stayed there, sat there, and quietly took his medicine from Wagner, saying that this was the most unprofessional thing he's ever heard of, to be reading a novel while the ball game's going on when you're supposed to be at work. And if I ever hear of it again, your career's over. Um, Don't ever do it again. So on a road trip about a week later, they go into Montreal, and uh, Nuxall conspires with the uh, engineer for the visiting radio team. He said, look, when I lean back in my chair and put my hands behind my head, I want you to cut the microphones and then cue Marty to come back uh, that the commercial's over, but do it it would be about 30 seconds before the the commercial break is actually over. So after the uh, in the middle of the between, after the end of the second going into the third which would be Joe's inning, Joe's leans back and puts his hands behind his head and um, so the engineer cues Marty early and Marty says, you know, welcome back to Montreal and and now for the third inning here's the old left-hander Joe Nuxhall. And Joe leans into the microphone and looks over this Hey Marty, what book you're reading today? <laughs> and, and Marty said I, he saw his whole career flash in front of him, and he called Joe every name of the book, and Joe was just beaming that he got Marty, and he told me this story 20 years later But he was that thrilled about having finally caught <laughs> caught uh, Marty on one because a lot of times uh, Joe would be the uh, would would be the, the the butt of the joke. Um, there was, uh, I mean, at one time when Marge Shot was on 60 Minutes, um, you know, Marty w- would lean in and say, hey, 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 Joe, you know, did you see that last night? And Yid said, Joe just took his microphone and laid it down on the table. He wasn't gonna say a word at all. He didn't want to comment or anything. Or or he'd sometimes fold his arms over his chest and, and lean back. There, the one time the 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 rock band, Damn Yankees were playing a concert at Riverfront uh, Coliseum, old Riverfront Coliseum. So the band members came into the booth the, the after the day game, before, and Marty and the band are talking about the Damn Yankees, and and Joe says, "Oh, Damn Yankee says I I saw that on Broadway once. Just no clue about rock bands, r- referring to the uh, Broadway musical instead. Um, but they could they were just so much fun to listen to." And and they had an awful lot of fun off the air, in addition to the the uh, to calling the game and, and and making the games fun.
1: John, uh, curious about like the the last few years. I believe Joe retired in uh, two thousand four. Right. What what was kind of the the last few years of of broadcasting like for him? Green Griffey Jr. coming back. Did you know? Was there any? Did did the game you know. Become less, you know, joyful or, or anything for him at the end, or
2: or well, there, there, there was a controversy when he when he, he um, they announced in two thousand and two that he was going to be doing uh, that he would retire at the end of the two thousand and four season, and um, for the two thousand and four season he was going to do sixty games because he had been with the Reds for sixty years. And that's when they hired a guy by the name of Steve Stewart, who didn't last long. He was there for three or four years with the Reds. He's now with the Kansas City Royals broadcast team. And in 2004, that summer, his book comes out, and he had a book signing at the public library downtown. And he made it clear that he didn't want to retire, but he was being forced out by the Reds. And that he wanted to cut back his schedule a little bit because the travel was getting to him. But it wasn't his idea, and at that point, John Allen was the GM, and and Carl Lindner owns a team, and all he would say was it, it wasn't John Allen, and and Kim Nuxall, Joe's son, later told me that you know to his to his dying day he thought that Carl Lindner for some reason wanted to force him out, and 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 force him into retirement, uh, as Kim said he wanted to cut back on his schedule. He did he didn't want to do all 162. So that, that story is like front page of the Inquirer the, ne- the next morning. It was all over TV. And the Reds went into full-time damage control and said there had been a misunderstanding and that Joe would be back for games with Marty, some games for Marty the next year. As it turned out, he did 40 or 50 games, I think, in 05. He did games in 06, and he did games in, in 07, and he died at the end of the 07 season. And Russ Jackson, who was one of the producers of Reds Radio, said that when he did games that last couple of seasons, when the game was over, he'd like to linger in the booth and just kind of sit there and and, and look out on the field. And and he, he in, in Russ Jackson's mind, it was Joe, you know, just not wanting to leave, enjoying this seat, enjoying this perch in the ballpark, and, uh, you know, not knowing when it would end. When, when those last two or three years he had different bouts with cancer, some lymph nodes uh, in his legs, in his tonsils. It kind of came and went. They, they think they'd get it and then they didn't. And and Marty, when he retired in 2019, made it clear that he retired at age, I guess it was 78. Um, but he wanted he, he was in good health and he wanted to be able to travel. He wanted to be able to play golf and enjoy life. He, and he made the point of it. He said, you know, by the time Joe retired, he was, he was ill. And 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 um, had different problems with cancer, and that he couldn't really enjoy life. He couldn't travel. He couldn't do a lot of the things that people would want to do when they're finally freed of work, and to, and to get out and, and to retire and travel. And, and he said that, that was one of the reasons. It, actually, the someone at the club had proposed. You know, Marty stayed forty six years through the, through the uh, twenty nineteen. 150th anniversary, um, but they had to ask him if he'd stay for 50. And he said, you know, no way, no, way. I want to get out. And and he's enjoyed traveling and playing golf and, and and not being tethered to the ballpark every night as he was when he was with the Reds doing the games.
0: So, John, you uh, obviously, with all your, the work you've done with Joe getting to know Joe, can you tell us a little bit about the Joe Nuxoff Foundation, some of the work you may have done with them and kind of like what you're, what we're planning to do with the book as well and
2: yeah, I, I'm giving a dollar of each book to the Nuxall Foundation. And actually, I told, when I signed a book to Kim, I said, hopefully someday I can give you a check for $1,000. Um, when this is all over with through Christmas, it's going to be more than $2,000. I, I, I'm just thrilled. The The the, the Nuxall Foundation has two or three different programs. The, the, the one that I find most, that, that's closest to my heart, is that starting in 85, Joe began giving high school senior scholarships to go to college and he passed in 2007 and they still do this so that in 36 years, the Nuxhall Foundation has given nearly $900,000 to kids to go to college in the name of a guy that never went to college at all, not one day, but they start, but in here in Butler County, there's 12 high schools that they support and they either give thousand dollars to two kids at each school or they give two thousand dollars to one kid at the 12 schools and each year they they have a have a lunch and they present the awards and it's interesting with the, they don't talk about the kids they don't say he was you know a three time letter in in basketball and football or tennis or track they instead talk about the the uh, volunteer work that each kid does, whether it's a, at a daycare or, a, or a nursing home or a food pantry or whatever, and, I, and it just it just kind of neat. The, the the other thing that that the Joe Knoxall Foundation has is the Miracle League fields up here in in Fairfield, and the Miracle League are two side by side all weathered baseball fields for the developmentally disabled to play uh, baseball, and. They have devices so that if the kid is paralyzed, like from the from the neck down, he can blow on a tube and it'll swing a bat to hit a ball. Um, and when each kid comes up to bat, each both diamonds have a huge video screen. And when every kid that comes up to bat has his name announced and his name and face put on the video screen, just like a big league team. And there's some leagues uh, that play there And it's just not kids. There's kids from the age four to 74 who play a game that they probably, some of them thought they'd never be able to play and a game that Joe loved. Um, Unfortunately, the the field opened in 2012. So it was after Joe passed. They've since added other things to the complex. They added, as a kid, I called it a merry-go-round. It was a round thing where you'd push it around and you hop on and it's right around. But they have one of those with, with locks and straps so you could lock down a wheelchair and spin a kid. And two years ago, they they ha- have opened a handicapped accessible 18-hole miniature golf course so that kids could play golf as well. And the, the next dream is building a uh, gym uh, building to the, to the right next to it where there could be um, Gym for year-round um, athletic facilities, because uh, as you know, whatever town you're in, the gym time for all the all the uh, high school and grade school and YMCA and all the other teams, it's always at a premium to get gym space. It, 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 and golf was kind of neat too, because because Joe was you know loved to play golf. Uh, there's varying reports on how well he did. I, I run into people. And they, and through through having this book out, and they um, say you know how nice Joe was, or they met him at a restaurant, or they saw him around the ballpark, and he gave him an autograph, and he's always so nice and friendly. And those that play golf with him, um, many of them have a story about playing golf with Joe and seeing him throw a club. Um, there are some people that maybe saw him throw two. Uh, Tom Browning in the book told me that he played with Joe once. And Joe threw every club in his bag. Um, he got he threw a club and it got stuck in the moss in a tree uh, down in Plant City. And he took every club he had, thrown it up there to try to knock it out. And he looked over to Browning and Browning sitting in the in the uh, golf cart, drinking a beer, just laughing his ass off at Joe. And he said, Joe came over, sat down and opened up a beer. They each had a beer. And then Joe went back to, the, to all, where all his clubs are scattered, took one, threw it up knocked the club loose and it came down put all the clubs back in his bag and they continued playing golf.
0: That's awesome. So for other people who are looking to pick up a copy of this book after this interview did today where are the where all can they pick one where all can they get a copy of the book
2: um, the, the, they can get it uh, I have a website as um, you look real close on the cover of that book you see that I, that's me holding an old school cassette player. So my kids think it's hilarious that the Analog Man here has a website and soon to have an ebook. But uh, I have a, a website called tvkeys.com, tvkies uh, I'm self-publishing it, which means I'm sitting behind me here in the, in the living room is a stack of 10 boxes. So I sign each book and mail it. Um, you can also get it at Amazon, amazon.com. If you're in the greater Cincinnati area, it's at, Joseph Beth Booksellers over at uh, Rookwood Commons. Uh, it's at the Reds Hall of Fame gift shop. And in Covington, Kentucky, it's at uh, a little bookstore called Roebling Point Books and Coffee. And up here in Hamilton, it's actually at a place called Clark Sporting Goods here in Hamilton. It's the building in downtown Hamilton that has the Joe Nuxall mural on the side of it. So um, it's available in a, in a number of places. Like I said, if you order through my website, I, I sign each one before I personally stick it in the envelope, seal the envelope, drive to the post office and 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 mail it. so um, but i have I've had a uh, really good feedback from it. Uh, Marty loved it. Uh, Kim loved it. Uh, J- Jim Maloney gave me two thumbs up um, and uh it 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 just has been a, an amazing reaction from people to this to the book.
0: It's awesome. I know I'm uh, gonna be one that's definitely excited to read it. Uh, so, John, thank you so much for taking some time and hanging out with us today. Thank uh, you. I'm really excited we got to promote your book, have you on. Here's some great Joe Nuxall stories. Uh, I'm really glad you gave more detail in the Macho Man stories because I've always wondered about it. Uh, i pick up
2: the book. It's about a, a cu- couple of pages in it. I think you'll enjoy it.
0: I will absolutely. So th- for everyone tuning in, thank you so much uh, for checking out Late Night Reds Talk Live here Monday nights. Part of the Believe Podcast Network and Bet Online. Uh, please make sure to take a moment and give us a follow on Twitter at Late Reds. Give John a follow at TV Keys, just like it shows here for his website URL. Um, I saw that you were at college game day the other day for a school. I don't really talk much about that's okay though. Um, We'll, we'll, we'll keep away from that, but everyone enjoy your night. Have a good one and give us five star reviews. Take it easy, everyone.